Rebecca D'Antonio of Orlando, Florida, found true love online. Matthew told her he was a widower raising his five-year-old son. Rebecca would later say, we just had a lot in common. We like to try new foods. It was like there was definitely a connection. Rebecca, I think your bar is too low. I don't know if that's a lot in common. During their year-long relationship, Matthew would never agree to video calls or meetings in person. Red flag if you're on an online dating site. But when he asked, Rebecca started to, uh, agreed to start sending him money. In the end, she sent him over $100,000, leading to her financial ruin, empty bank accounts, facing eviction, and a near-suicidal state. When she told Matthew she was considering taking her own life, her respo- his response was, well, you have to do what you have to do. So Rebecca was one of the more than 1,700 people who reported being catfished in just the state of Florida in 2021. The average loss for Floridians was $40,000 in catfishing schemes. By the way, data shows that Californians are the most likely to fall victim to catfishing scams. We're number one. Way to go, everyone. (laughs) In our text tonight, there's a different Rebecca. She's not the victim. She's one of the perpetrators of a catfish scheme that cons Isaac into giving Jacob the birthright blessing instead of Esau. So let's get right into it. Genesis 27, starting in verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could not see, he called his older son Esau and he said to him, my son, And he answered, here I am. And he said, look, I'm old and I don't know the day of my death. So now take your hunting gear, your quiver and bow and go out in the field to hunt some game for me and make me a delicious meal that I love and bring it to me to eat so that I can bless you before I die. There are uh, aspects of this story I hadn't considered before. If you're familiar with the Bible, this is a familiar story. It's one of the big ones. Uh, one of the things I hadn't really thought of before was, was this question. How old are Isaac and Esau and Jacob in this scene? I typically think of the twins as being strapping young men about to set out on their own. But when we do the math from the end of Jacob's life backwards, we figure out that he and his brother are probably in their 70s in this story. Jacob was 91 years old when he had Joseph. Joseph is a little baby or just a little boy when Jacob leaves Laban. Laban, he was with Laban for 20 years. So that means that Jacob is at least 70 years old here. And Isaac, therefore, is about 130 years old. It seems like from what we can tell, Isaac was bedridden in this passage. They keep talking about him sitting up in his bed. He keeps talking about dying. He's getting on in years, and he was blind, we're told. Your version may say his eyes were dim. Another one says they were too bleary to see. And so we see he had no clarity to his vision, no light for sight. And this provides a great devotional thought to us right away. Because what did Paul say about us? He said, right now, we, as human beings, we, when it comes to the things that you really need to see, the the things that are truest about life and the spiritual life and, and eternity and all of that, he says, right now, we see dimly. Another version puts it this way. Now we see a blurred image in a mirror. 
And so as Christians, we look forward to eternity where we are going to see the Lord face to face. We're going to have uh, truth clearly presented to us. We're going to understand everything in, in proper perspective, all the things that we don't understand in the here and now. We're going to know as we are known, and we're going to see everything perfectly clearly lit up by the glory of God. But in the here and now, on this side of eternity, we're a lot more like Isaac. Uh, we're bleary-eyed. We need to have the eyes of our heart enlightened by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. That's what the New Testament says. Because we cannot navigate life without that enlightenment. We talk about in, you know, you go to school and you talk about the enlightenment. Real enlightenment is found through the wisdom of God. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about about how to live life in a way that honors God and is blessed by God and is going God's way and is laying hold of the wisdom of God, which cannot be found outside of the teaching of God and submission to the God of the Bible. And so we can't navigate life in the, uh, with the vision that we have apart from God. Now, Isaac can't see, but he's going to try to do his own navigating anyway in this passage. He had decided that he was not going to follow God's directions. It's kind of a shocking thing to say about one of the patriarchs. Um, Isaac is one of those characters we just don't end up talking a lot about because there's not a lot to talk to us about him. But here in the end, he's decided that he is not going to follow what God has said because God had said very plainly when his boys were born, Esau, the older, will serve Jacob, the younger. It's very clear, very plain. But Isaac, in this passage, sick as he is, blind as he is, he's doing his best to evade the plan of God, to bypass the plan of God. And what we see is that he's trying to sneak this blessing ceremony in under the wire and in private. It's just going to be between him and his son. Where's everybody else? Where's the rest of the family? Where are the servants? Where's other people who might be involved? No, no, no. This is all going to be very private, just him and his boy. Why? Because it's not what God wants, and Isaac knows that. But there's a flaw in Isaac's plan, a big one. It's his selfishness. What does he say here? Me first, he says to Esau. Me first. You go get me a delicious meal, and then I can bless you. If you benefit me, if you please me, if you give me something, then I will give something back to you. And that selfishness not only reveals the natural inclination of our selfish hearts, uh, as opposed to the uh, unselfishness of God who doesn't wait to bless us, right? He doesn't say, well, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. You know, Isaac here sort of living the, the end days of his life in his flesh show us what happens if we don't pursue God to the end. But not only is that show us that, we see that his selfishness provides an opening for someone else to come in and maneuver against Isaac while he's trying to maneuver against God. And so it's pretty sad opening here. Isaac lying on his bed is a far cry away from that devoted young man who laid himself down voluntarily on the altar of Moriah. So at the beginning of Isaac's life, what do we see? We see him voluntarily say, I will do what God has said no matter what the cost to me or the people around me. I'll lay down on the altar. I will be a living sacrifice to my God because I trust him and I love him and I'll serve him no matter what. And now we fast forward a hundred years maybe, and Isaac has just 
has slacked in his devotion to God and his obedience to God's Word. And now we see him lying on his own bed, weak and blind, and trying to go around the will of God. He stopped caring about the Word of God. He stopped caring about the will of God. When we follow our own vision, our human hearts, when they are steering the ship of our lives, we invariably sail into the shoals of selfishness. And when selfishness is in charge of your life, then when it's in charge of all of our lives, we don't like the plans of God because the plans of God include suffering and the plans of God include serving others and the plans of God include um, uh, putting off the pleasures of this world in favor of the rewards of eternity. And so we often will not like the plans of God when we've given into selfishness. We may even resent the plans of God and try to find an end one around them and we end up crashing on the rocks. It would be so much better for all of us to admit that we do not have adequate vision for life, that we are bleary-eyed in this life, and we need to trust the Lord to guide us, to take us by the hand and walk us through life so that we can get where He wants us to go and where we want to go. Verse 5 says, Now Rebekah was listening to what Isaac said to his son Esau. So while Esau went to the field to hunt some game to bring in, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Listen, I heard your father talking with your brother Esau. He said, bring me game and make me a delicious meal so that I can bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now, my son, listen to me. Do what I tell you. Go to the flock. Bring me two choice young goats. I will make them into a delicious meal for your father, the kind he loves, and take it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Moses, our author, shows us the bitter rivalry in this family. A commentator points out that Esau is called Isaac's son. Rebekah is called, uh, Jacob is called Rebekah's son. Of course, they're both each other's sons. But we see this sad split, this sad rivalry, this factioning off of the family. Rebekah had a plan not only to get her favorite son across the finish line first, but also a plan that was more in accordance with what God had prophesied. Uh, It's true. This is what God had prophesied. Not that they would scam uh, Isaac, but that Jacob would be the one who gets the firstborn blessing. Even though her goal aligned with God's goal, her methods absolutely did not. God is never pleased when we use sinful practices or worldly methods to accomplish what we think are good goals, even if we try to slap the the Christian name on them and say, well, it was all for Christ. It was all for the work of God. Yeah, but how did you get there? Uh, You know, what, what, how did you pave that road? She thinks that she has all the answers here. Multiple times in this chapter, she's going to grab Jacob sort of by, by the shoulders and say, listen to me, listen to me, do this, do this, do this. She's, she's got it all figured out, but we're going to see it doesn't lead to a good thing at all. Now, a few passages back in Genesis, we were told that Isaac had, oh, he had such a taste for wild game. That's why he loved Esau more than Jacob. He had such a taste for wild game. That's, that's really what he loved. But it's interesting. What do we see here? His tastes are not that discerning. If you watch Top Chef every now and then, you know, some seasons they have a, a blindfolded uh, taste test challenge. And they have different herbs and different spices, and they see who among the contestants can correctly identify, uh, you know, the most number of ingredients. And a lot of times, man, they can't get two, three, four. And then a few people really do have discerning tastes, and they get 15, 18, 20. 
What do we see here? Isaac, you know, the man with such a taste for wild game, that thing that was sort of defining his life at this point in his life, they were not discerning. He could be tricked with regular old goat meat, right? This is not some wild game. She's just going to get a couple of goats uh, and break them down. But Rebecca knew what sort of spices to put on the plate, what sort of herbs to mix in to convince Isaac he was really eating something exotic, really eating something special. Uh, and, and so it is, it, 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 it's a sad sort of chuckle that we have at Isaac's expense, the gourmand here, just eating a couple of his own go- goats. You know, but what it tells us on a devotional level is that you and I, we are not as sophisticated as we think we are. We are not as, as, you know, so discerning as we think we are. Our earthly palates, you know, uh, those things which tempt us. I mean, our earthly palates can be easily tricked, easily deceived. And this is why the Lord, you know, He doesn't want to, us to just believe things with our head. He says, what, I, what you really need is to have your heart transformed because your heart is deceptive above all things. It's exceedingly wicked. And even the desires of your hearts, you don't even understand the motivation of your heart. And so I need to not only convince your mind about the truth of the gospel, we need to transform your whole life. We need to transform your heart. We need to transform even your desires so that you're not getting tricked by these cheap counterfeits or or these cheap spices of the world, but instead that your lives are going to be sated with with real lasting satisfaction of of godly peace and truth and righteousness so that you and I won't be a mark for the cons of sin that are are so quick to ensnare us and never satisfy. Those of you who lived a life far apart from God you know that you chased after a lot of these things, but in the end, they bound you and that they did not satisfy, that they, they were making big promises, but they were really conning you the whole time, offering you this with one hand, but robbing you blind with the other. And, and, and so the Lord comes and he says, I don't want you to be a mark for the cons of sin. I don't want you to be tricked. I want to transform you from the inside out and give you real discernment, give you real satisfaction, give you real abundance, all of these things that you can't get on your own. Verse 11, Jacob answered Rebekah, his mother, look, my brother Esau is a hairy man, but I'm a man with smooth skin. Suppose my father touches me, then I'll be revealed to him as a deceiver and bring a curse rather than a blessing on myself. His mother said to him, your curse be on me, my son, just obey me and go get them for me. So Jacob's not worried about doing something that is morally wrong. He's worried about getting caught and what that will mean. Uh, He acknowledges, interestingly, that there is a divine element to what they were stealing, right? He says, okay, this is going to be a problem because if I'm caught, a curse is going to fall on me. And so he recognizes that there's this divine element to what they're talking about. This wasn't just about potentially wrecking a relationship between father and son or brother with brother. Those were already ruined. Uh, But this was about God's a wonderful providential work through the life of a very specific lineage, leading ultimately to the Savior. We don't know how much Jacob understood, but we do know that the promises that had been delivered uh, to Adam and Eve uh, through the line of Shem, down uh, Seth and Shem and Abraham, those promises would have come down to Jacob. And even though we wouldn't say he was a, a, a devoted believer at this point, he understands that there is something divine going on. There is this interaction with the God of heaven. And he's like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I get caught, I'm going to be 
cursed, and so what should we do about it? And so Jacob has some grasp of God's personal involvement in this saga. But even still, he's still willing to be a part of the heist anyway. And so he's willing to risk the wrath of both his earthly father and his heavenly father, but he thinks for some reason, well, if we pull this off, I'll, I'll get blessing but not cursing. There'll be no consequences if we pull this off, but how are we going to pull it off? It's like any good heist movie, right? They always show the one big heist they're going to do, but the person they're stealing from, oh, he's a bad dude, and if he catches you, you know, he's going to do all of these things to you and your friends and your family and your dog and all these different things. Right? And so Jacob understands that there is a divine involvement, and yet he's willing to scam his father and, in a sense, try to scam the Lord at the same time. Verse 14, so he went and got the goats and brought them to his mother, and his mother made the delicious food his father loved. And then Rebekah took the best clothes of her older son Esau, which were in the house, and had her younger son Jacob wear them. She put the skins of the young goats on his hands and the smooth part of his neck she handed the delicious food and the bread she had made to her son Jacob. So Rebecca raided Esau's closet. This is perhaps the first recorded case of identity theft ever in human history. Stealing his identity, stealing his stuff. Got to watch out for that. But here's something I had not considered before um, this week when I was thinking about this. The skins of these goats had not been dried. They had not been cured. Maybe they had not even been fleshed. Uh, I've never skinned an animal. I talked to a friend of mine who has skinned animals before, and I did a little bit of reading about it. If you skin an animal after you've killed it, you have to flesh the skin. You know, we have tools and machines that do that now, but you pull the skin off, that's not a clean thing. You have to spend time taking the, the stuff off the backside of the skin. Now, what we see here is the urgency of what they're doing. Time was of the essence. No, I don't think these skins had really been adequately fleshed at all. Jacob, what he put on was still warm and oozing with the gore of slaughter. I mean, this is a real thing that they did. This is gross and awful. We've seen Bible characters clothed with animal skins before in this book. In the Garden of Eden, the Lord God tenderly covered the sin of Adam and Eve. Here, animal skins become not a covering but a costume. Rather than, than a propitiation for sin, they are a prop to help Jacob in his theft. He, he puts on these disgusting, moist, oozing skins in order to steal something from his own family. In Isaiah and Zechariah, we learn that from heaven's perspective, you and I are clothed in what the Bible calls filthy rags. They're disgusting and bloody and just the worst thing that you can imagine. Even the best person on earth, heaven says, is wearing the garments of death like Jacob. All your self-righteousness, all your accomplishments, all your promises, all your intentions, and none of that matters because of the filth and the death of your sin, because you're wearing these kinds of goat skins, slimy with the gore of your iniquity. And we need a Savior who will come and say, hey, I'm going to take that away from you. I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to flesh everything off of you and wash you clean with my own blood. And then I'm going to wrap you up in a robe of righteousness. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. And, and when you think about 
people who are presented with the gospel and Jesus says, hey, you are, you are wallowing around in the filthy, oozing, bloody goat skins of, of, of your sin, which just brings slaughter and, and ruin to everything in your life. How about you let me take those away from you and take away your guilt and take away your shame and I'll clean you and I'll wrap you in righteousness and I'll give you a hope and a future and I'll adopt you as my own son or daughter and I'll give you an eternal inheritance. And people say, no, thank you. No, I, I'm going to go my own way. I've got these goat skins, fresh goat skins that I get to slap on my neck and put on my arms. But that is what the Bible says is the choice. And, and we, we, we want to be people who recognize sin for what it is, the foulness of it, the stench of it, the horror of it. Even if you haven't seen, uh, what's it called, the, the movie where the dude wears the person's face in that scene, right? They, they make a joke about it in The Office. So if you've seen The Office where they make fun of Hannibal Lecter, when he, he puts a face on something, it's, it's, it's awful and it's horrible and it's, it's the worst thing anybody's ever seen. And the Lord says, yeah, that's your body of death. That you're wearing this this horrible horrible garment. And I want to take that away from you, and I want to wrap you in my righteousness. And that's what Christ has done. Verse 18. When he came to his father, he said, "My father," and he answered, "Here am I. Here I am. Who are you, my son?" Jacob replied to his father, "I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you've told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game, so that you may bless me." Isaac said to his son. How did you ever find it so quickly, my son? And he replied, because the Lord your God made it happen for me. So after perjury and fraud, we can add blasphemy to Jacob's charges. Going pretty great so far. He says it was an act of God that he was able to, to find this game. It was all the Lord. Man, is nothing sacred. He's raiding his brother's own closet. He's killing these little goats for no reason. He's stolen his brother's identity. He's conspired against his dad. He's lying to him over and over again. And now he even invokes the Lord sacrilegiously and blasphemously in his ploy. But let's pause to see again how gracious God is to this family. This is the family of faith. These are the patriarchs. Uh, these are the people that, that God used to deliver the Messiah. God is so gracious to this family. And you know what? God is gracious this way to all of us. They're insulting God. They're provoking him. All four of the characters in this, in this text are an affront to God and, and to his holiness and to his goodness, and, and yet he shows them grace. His faithfulness and love toward them continues. And you know what? As bad as this family is acting, this is like one of those really bad reality television, like real housewife shows. I don't watch any of those shows, but I know they're... they're low-quality people on those shows. That's who we're talking about here. And you know what? You and I are no better, and we are no better than, than Esau and Jacob and Rebekah and Isaac, not in our heart of hearts. When we were dead in trespasses and sins, God gave us life. When we were hostile toward him, when at war with him, the Bible said, he came and offered us terms of peace. We cannot overestimate God's grace, and we can never be too thankful uh, for God's grace. Verse 21, Isaac said to Jacob, please come closer so I can touch you, my son. Are you really my son Esau or not? So Jacob came closer to his father Isaac. When he touched him, he said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he blessed him. 
Again, he asked, are you really my son Esau? And he replied, I am. And he said, bring it closer to me and let me eat some of my son's game so that I can bless you. Jacob brought it closer to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank and his father Isaac said to him, please come closer and kiss me, my son. And so he came closer and he kissed him. And when Isaac smelled his clothes, he blessed him. And he said, oh, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Two questions. How hairy was this dude? And how bad did he smell? Those of you who are parents of boys, you ever like walk into their room and they shower and they have things like deodorant and like, and like laundry like machines that clean their stuff. And you're like, man, whoo, man, like a slap in the face. Or have you ever been to a petting zoo? You like walk into a petting zoo. Does anybody say, you know what I would love? My kids to smell like this petting zoo. Look, there's a goat. That smells great. Why don't, we make, why don't we bottle this smell up and spray it on our kids? That would be a great essential oil, by the way. You know, we have like, we have orange and we have patchouli and then we have like disgusting goat. You just like rub that all, o- all over yourself. So, but Isaac's radar here is, is blipping like crazy. He knows something is up. He suspected a trick, but he fell for it any, anyway. Now think about it. Never forget that this is a huge household. They have hundreds of servants. Tons of people. It's not that these four people, you know, live on a desert island somewhere and nobody else is there. They have tons of servants all around all the time. So he could have easily escaped this con, and he thought he was being conned. He could have easily escaped it if he simply would have called a single servant in to verify who's standing in front of me. Why didn't he do that? He didn't do it because he's also doing something he shouldn't be doing. He is trying to accomplish his own will despite knowing what God had decreed. And so he relies only on himself. He relies only on his own smell, his own touch, his own cross-examination of this bleary figure in front of him. And so he is deceived. And so he's trying to do this thing in the dark. But as the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. Verse 28, may God give to you from the dew of the sky and from the richness of the land an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow to worship you. Be master over your relatives. May your mother's sons bow and worship to you. Those who curse you will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed. Now, this is amazing because on the one hand, Isaac is absolutely defying God. This is the kind of thing that gets people just executed on the spot in other parts of the Bible. He is defying God because he thinks he's talking to Esau and he has the authority given by God to give a blessing. And he says, I will give it to whom I will give it to. And he thinks that he's giving it to Esau. And when he says, be master over your relatives, this is the antithesis of what God commanded. God said, I want A. And he said, no, I want B. And so this is an incredible defiance against God. And yet at the exact same time, we have an incredible demonstration of both God's grace and his providence. When God decrees something, it cannot be undone. What he wants will happen. He uses the astounding power of his providence to accomplish his will. And at the same time, again, let's marvel at God's grace. He didn't strike Isaac dead. He didn't show up in the room and say, how dare you do this? 
He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he still uses this man to be a blessing in the line of the Messiah. And even more than that, in the future, long after this incident, this is really the last significant incident in Isaac's life that we have, but even after this, far into the future, how does God identify himself? He says, you know who I am? I'm the God of Abraham, and I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of this guy, who while he was faithless, I remain faithful. Isaac deserves no such affiliation or friendship with God, not the way we score things. When you, you know, when you have a falling out with a friend like this at the end of your life, you know, sometimes it's in the news when celebrities or whoever have a big falling out, and then that's it. I never talk to that person again. They never talk to me again. We're cutting people out of wills. We're doing left, you know, X, Y, and Z. We're done. And God says, no, no. No, no, I'm the God of Isaac. God's grace is abundant. Now, like Paul says, do we sin so that grace can abound? Of course not. God forbid. We don't want to receive the grace of our God in vain, the New Testament says. The New Testament says we, we don't want to fall, fall short of the grace that God gives us. We want to walk in grace and be people who are willing participants in providence, not accidental ones. And we want to trust that the Lord's way is the only way that leads to hope and glory and fulfillment and all good things. What, how much better would it have been if these people would have been going with the Lord and obeying him and doing what he asked? Verse 30, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had left the presence of his father, Isaac, and his brother Esau arrived from his hunting. He said, what smells like goat in here? Uh, he also made, maybe Esau was like pig pen and, you know, peanuts just like dust clouds going around with him. I don't know. He also had made some delicious food and brought it to his father. He said to his father, let my father get up and eat some of his son's game so that you may bless me. But his father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he answered, I'm Esau, your firstborn son. Uh, Esau identifies himself as the firstborn, but he is not the firstborn. I mean, technically he was born first, but he had legally, willingly sold that right that position to his brother. He signed on the dotted line, preferring soup to sanctification. Edward VIII abdicated the throne of Britain in 1936. He made his choice. But guess what? He couldn't go around anymore saying, I'm King Edward. No, you're not. You were King Edward. And then you decided you wanted something else instead of that position, that title, that honor, that way of life. And so he walked away from that. He had no right to call himself King Edward anymore. Esau had no right to this blessing, not spiritually, not prophetically, not legally. And yet he and his father were trying to bypass all of that, breaking God's command, breaking the law of the land, and, and just they're trying to bypass all of it behind closed tent flaps. Let's just get this done so that it's done and then nobody can say anything about it. But what they meant for self, God meant worked for sovereignty because that's the sovereignty of God. That's the providential power of God. Esau says, here's my delicious food, which you wanted, so bless me. He assumed that would be enough to buy back his good fortune, along with having been his dad's favorite for so long. Esau had cut God out of the equation of his life completely. Instead, he relied on his ability to please his dad with his skills and his talents but in the end, life is more than skill or charm or ability. As, as God's word says, beauty fades, popularity wanes, skills dull, abilities slack. 
We want to live lives defined not by those human pursuits, but by the presence and strength of God because He gives our lives eternal significance. He gives us lasting strength, lasting value, those things that cannot be robbed from us, that cannot be tarnished, that cannot decay like all the others. Verse 33, Isaac began to tremble uncontrollably. Who was it then, he said, who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it all before you came in, and I blessed him. Indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he cried out with a loud and bitter cry, and he said to his father, bless me too, my father. But he replied, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. So he said, isn't he rightly named Jacob, for he has cheated me twice now. He took my birthright, and look, now he's taken my blessing. And then he asked, haven't you saved a blessing for me? Hebrew scholars tell us that Esau is screaming excessively in this passage. He had assumed that he'd just be handed the blessing despite his refusal to go God's way for 70 years, despite him selling the birthright to Jacob years ago, despite all of that. He says, I just want it handed to me. I just want it. Isaac, too, is disturbed, shaken in his sandals as he recognizes that he has been found out by God and that God has overruled his sinful plan to give Esau what God had appointed for Jacob. Verse 37, but Isaac answered Esau, look, I've made him a master over you, have given him all of his relatives as his servants, and have sustained him with grain and new wine. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. And Esau wept loudly. These were a weepy bunch, this, this crowd. His father Isaac answered him, look, your dwelling place will be away from the richness of the land, away from the dew of the sky above. You'll live by your sword and you'll serve your brother. But when you rebel, you will break his yoke from your neck. Esau is not looking for any great spiritual future or place in God's plan. He wants a material blessing. Make no mistake. And now he realizes that that payday is gone and everything crumbles and he can't handle it. What a sad, spoiled, shameful man. Isaac has been rebuked by God in this scene. To his credit, here at the close, he immediately falls in line with what the Lord has done. He says, what can I do? It's done. He doesn't try to go against God any more than he already has. He now takes up the prophetic word of God and agrees with it and submits to it. No more maneuvering. He says, you know what? The Lord caught me. I was wrong. I've shaken to my core, and now we're going to do what the Lord has said. Verse 41, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And Esau determined in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. When the words of her older son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she summoned her younger son Jacob and said to him, listen, your brother Esau is consoling himself by planning to kill you. Now, my son, listen to me. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. And stay with him for a few days until your brother's anger subsides, until your brother's rage turns away from you and he forgets what you've done to him. And then I'll send for you and bring you back from there. Why should I lose you both in a day? Stay with him a few days. We see that Rebecca thought she had all the answers, but she is desperately miscalculated. Their little swindle would cost a lot more than a few days. Jacob would be gone for 20 years. And we have no reason biblically to think that he ever saw his mom again. The next time we see Rebecca, she's dead and buried. What should the family of faith have done in this strange situation? We get a great redo 
at the end of Jacob's life. He has to live through a very similar situation. He, too, has been told by God to bless Joseph's younger boy over the older boy. And you know what? When they do the redo, it's no big thing. He crosses his hands and he does it. And at first, Joseph protests. He says, no, my father, this is the older. And Jacob says, listen, I know what I'm doing. This is God's will. And then it's done. That's it. No big thing. Simple faith, simple trust, simple obedience. That's what they should have done in this situation. There's an important question asked twice in this passage. Who are you? Isaac asks it of each of his sons. Who are you? And that's a good question for each of us as we turn this passage in on ourselves. If Isaac had answered the question, who are you, honestly, he would have had to say something like, well, I'm the one who doesn't like God's plan, and I'm going to try to avoid it, and I can do this all, on my, all by myself. If Rebecca had on, answered it honestly, she would have said, well, I'm the one who believes God, but I'm not willing to wait for God or trust Him to accomplish His will. I have all the answers, and the end justifies whatever means I use. Jacob would have had to answer, who am I? I'm the one scamming my dad, cheating my brother, blaspheming against God so that I can get ahead in life. I got, I got to do what I got to do to get what I want. And Esau would, should have said, I'm the one who doesn't care about anything except my own comfort, my own wealth, my own here and now. I don't think about God or spiritual things. That's who I am. Bad answers all around. But who are you? One thing this story reveals is just how much we need God's directions. Look at these people all trying to manage their life. Look at these people all trying to, to get to the finish line. It's going really, really bad. We need God's directions. We need God's decisions. We need God's designations for our lives. We don't know what we need to know to make it on our own. As just a simple example, look how they all thought Isaac was about to keel over, including Isaac himself. They all assumed he was at death's door, all of them. He was going to live another 50 years. 50 years he lived. We need, if, we, if we get it that wrong, I'm 50 years wrong on whether I'm about to die or not. Man, we need God to direct us and to speak to us and to show us which way to go. And he will if we are willing to listen and surrender. All of the people in this passage wanted to go their own way toward their own destinations. Not one of them was seeking the Lord, even though some of them professed to believe the Lord. And look at the wreckage. Look at the cost. Look at the mistakes made. Be a believer who can answer the who are you question this way. I am a child of God in the service of God, following the word of God, walking in the way of God with full confidence in my God. Amen?